Hello, Parkview. Thank you. My name's Chaz. I am the Groups and Local Mission Pastor here at the Orland campus. And whether you're joining us here at Orland or at New Lenox or Homer Glen, uh, we're thrilled to have you with us as we wrap up this last sermon in our Rooted series, where we've been talking about the five different ways that God uses to grow your faith. I know for me, I've been particularly challenged by the fact that our faith is, is like a muscle. It's something that it can and it should grow but it takes our intentionality. It takes our effort to embrace those ways that God has given us to grow it. And I hope in the course of this time together that you realize that you need to be a little more intentional about your faith growing than these people approach to working out. Check this out. Really? Escalators to get to the gym? Or how about this? Can't say I wouldn't mind it, but Krispy Kreme? <laughs> really? This one, this last one, this is my favorite here. I mean... That takes effort, effort, to be able to not to put any effort to it. But truthfully, if our faith is to grow, it takes our willingness. It takes our ability to embrace the things that God has given us. And in this series, we've talked about, or we've been talking about these five different ways. We got these from Andy Stanley, the catalysts that God uses to grow our faith. And they've been this, uh, providential relationships. That we're simply not going to grow spiritually unless we're connected relationally. It's also been personal ministry, that God's created something unique for us to do. And when we do that, our, our faith and our trust in him grows. The third has been practical teaching, that unless we not just understand what the Bible has to say, but we actually put it into practice um, is when our, our faith grows. And last week, Tim talking about our private spiritual disciplines, that space that we create to hear from God. H have you got some chair time this last week? I hope you have, and I hope that's great your faith in what God wants to do with you. And lastly, this week, today, we're talking about pivotal circumstances. Now, I think this last one that we're talking about in pivotal circumstances is honestly the most impactful way that God can grow our faith, but it's also the most difficult one to embrace. All of the others, we have to choose to be willing to, to embrace those and to, to put those into practice. But pivotal circumstances, they're something that come into our life whether we want them to or not. Because a pivotal circumstance is a crossroads that we come to from, from, from an event or something that goes on. Maybe we get a new job or maybe there's a, a birth in the family or maybe there's a difficulty like a death or an illness that you face. That it brings you to a crossroads and forces you to make a decision with where the direction of your life goes. And the, the decision that you choose has long-term and lasting implications for the rest of your life. My wife, Chelsea, and I, we had a, a pivotal circumstance that happened early on in our relationship. It was actually our first date. We were in college, and I had everything planned out to go to the next closest town and ha had a great time in store. And something you need to know about Chelsea and I is that she has an uncanny sense of direction. I mean, you can take her anywhere. She'll know exactly how she got there and how to get back at a, in a quicker route. Me, on the other hand, I have zero sense of direction. I get lost going to the grocery store. And so I knew this. I knew I had to, to pay special attention to the directions to make sure we got there. And, and we did and had a wonderful time uh, at dinner and going to the comedy show after and having coffee. And uh, it was a wonderful time. Then it was time to head home. And I'm like, all right, okay, we got this. Didn't have a problem getting here. So we start headed home. And, and I'm driving. And we're having a wonderful conversation. 
And I slowly begin to realize I have no idea where we are. Things have quit looking familiar. I think she kind of caught on. She's like, do you know where we're going? Like, do you know what's going on and, and where, where we're heading? I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I just kind of go for it. I take this exit here. And I, I, I truthfully, between us, I had no idea where we were. But don't you dare tell her because I still deny it to this day. But thankfully, we continued on, and we passed a gas station. And I'm like, oh, I have to go to the bathroom. And so I sneak in, I do my business, and then I, I, I ask the attendant, oh, so where am I? How do I get home? And luckily, we weren't very far off of our path of where we needed to go. Um, and thankfully, our relationship obviously lasted. But thankfully for our relationship, there is this little invention called the GPS, and GPSs are helpful because they clarify those pivotal circumstances, those crossroads, and make sure we take the right direction instead of going off in the wrong direction and facing the implications. Because pivotal circumstances in our life are those crossroads we face and the, where the decisions and direction our, take, our life takes has long-term and lasting implications. My friend Jeff had a couple pivotal circumstances that happened in his life, and he was willing to sit down with a video crew this week and share, just share some of his story. Um, so take a look and listen to his, his story here. Growing up, I had a father who had a, a real difficult past and made the home a little bit difficult to live in, a little challenging. I didn't know how to deal with the pain and that I had in my own heart that my father put there, that anger. So I tried to um, find love by doing drugs, smoking pot, and drinking. One night in the woods over in Palos Hills, I was around a campfire and smoking some pot and drinking some beer, and a friend had come back that had uh, been saved, and he was kind of known as a guy who found Jesus. That night in the woods, I never saw it coming. I never expected my life would be changed forever. And when he told me that night about Jesus and told me about love, it was revolutionary. Because I knew Christianity as being kind of judgmental or hard or something I had to do every Sunday that I didn't want to do. And the people that call themselves Christians just didn't represent love. So it was pretty wild for me. And that day I'd asked him for a Bible and, you know, told him I want to learn more. And, you know, a week later I didn't hear anything. So I called him up and asked him where my Bible was. And, he said, I didn't think you were serious. I thought you were just high, which I was, but I really wanted that Bible. And within um, a couple months, I think I started the course of letting that life go and churning a new leaf. I started going to church and trying to live for God. And I, I learned what grace was. I learned what forgiveness was and peace. It was amazing. My life had changed. I started you know, volunteering in different organizations. And that after time, I mean, you know, I had some bad experience with the church. You know, I just ended up kind of falling and walking away from God. I uh, got back to partying, not quite as crazy, but I started living kind of a selfish life and stopped going to church. And um, a long time went by. And in that time, I tried to fill that hole again in my heart. I drank probably too much. I partied, I traveled, I thought I was having fun, I chased girls, whatever it was, but nothing ever did the trick. And every night, even if I supposedly had a great night, I would find myself in bed um, feeling sad and empty and wanting more. And it took a long time until I probably hit the bottom. And it wasn't, you know, a great fall. I didn't do something terrible. It just felt lonely. 
And eventually, I picked up that Bible, I opened it up, and I started reading again and wanting more. And that's when I reached out to some friends who got me connected with a pastor. And that pastor continuously invited me to church, invited me to different events that were going on, and I kept on saying no. And finally, I got an invitation to go to the Tribesdale House because a small group was meeting. I showed up, and I was a little bit nervous, but I met an amazing group of people. Um, had some great food, great beer, and got to get involved in community. And after that, I actually felt comfortable starting to go to a small group and started volunteering at Next Steps, serving there. And I met my wife, who um, was also all in for God. And uh, we got married, and now I have two stepdaughters and a wife and a dog and eight chickens. And my life is a lot different than where it used to be. Jeff didn't choose the difficult home life that he grew up with, and he didn't choose the difficult situations in church that he had to go through, but the direction that he eventually chose was to go to God, and his life and his faith was never the same because of those choices. I went to face the book this week and just threw out the general question of what pivotal circumstances has shaped your life. And i got to be honest, I was blown away by some of my friends' responses and, and their vulnerability and willingness to share. And I imagine that some of, your, some of their responses are similar to the, the same pivotal circumstances that you faced in your life and that you can resonate with some of these things because here are some of the responses to what people said were the pivotal circumstances in their life. Heard things like, my brother's suicide. There had to be so many unanswered questions about that. Having a chronic, incurable illness. I'm going to go through so much pain all of the time. The adoption of a special needs child. My children having severe accidents. Having to move and live overseas. The death of a parent. Being abused as a child. Having to have so much baggage your whole life dealing with that. Becoming a parent. An uncle getting killed by a drunk driver. Making new friends. Dealing with regular seizures. A car accident. Getting cancer. Going through a tornado. I think we could add to our list a hurricane that our friends in Houston and much of Texas and Louisiana are having to face now. That, that these weren't choices that, that were made so that these pivotal circumstances happened, but, but they happened in their life and they, they shaped their story. And the thing about these pivotal circumstances is most of the time, they're difficult, hard things that we have to go through. But in the midst of them, God works in a way that he could have only worked because of how we went through these situations. Now, granted, some of the times they're the good things that happen, like, uh, you know, you have a baby or you get a new job or something good happens in life that you get to celebrate, and that takes you to a crossroads. But oftentimes, it's the most difficult and hard things that we go through that God grows our faith the most. I think C.S. Lewis captured this well in the problem of pain when he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I understand the question of suffering. It's a huge question. 
That's one. I have a ton of questions about why would a good God allow suffering to exist in the world? And I know we've got answers like, well, there's sin that's in the world, and we live in a fallen and broken world, but, but still there are, are so many questions. I, I know I'm doing a funeral later this week for a friend of mine that I have so many questions about. And I don't want us this weekend to get totally hung up on the why of suffering, even though it's a huge question. But I want us to, to look at this question from a different angle. And look at the fact that God does really work in the midst of pivotal circumstances that are oftentimes some of the most difficult things that we go through in life. And because of how God works in those circumstances, we can know that we can trust him and that he is good and he is faithful and he does get us through these situations and grows our faith in the process. And this isn't just a way of explaining away God or making him more palatable, but it's acknowledging the fact that this is simply how God works. It's how he's worked throughout the whole story of the Bible. It's how he works in this story that we're going to look at today, and it's how he can work in our lives too. So if you have your Bibles and want to follow along with our story today, we're going to be in John chapter 11. And this may be a familiar story for many of you, and if you are familiar with the story, I want to invite you to don't rush ahead in your mind on the story, but Really try to experience everything that these characters are going through. Because what happens in this story is Jesus doesn't just leverage a pivotal circumstance, something that's happened, but he actually creates one and shows us what he can do and how he grows our faith in the midst of this circumstance and in these characters' lives and how he does what only he can do. So in John chapter 11, verse 1, here's where we start. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Right out of the gate, the author John here, make sure we know that these are close friends of Jesus. And that was exactly the case with Mary and Martha. They were ones who knew Jesus very closely. They, they'd ate with him. They had sheltered him on his travel. They had even provided financially for him on his ministry. And so it's totally reasonable that they would reach out to him with this deep and important need that they had for their brother to be healed from his sickness. And after all, Jesus has healed all sorts of people in the course of his ministry. Many, many, many types of people. Types of people he'd never met before. People who were just strangers who came up to him and asked for healing. He even healed people that he never even saw face to face. That they just asked for healing and he healed them from a distance. And so these close friends of Jesus come to him with his deep and honest request. And what Jesus does next, and the, 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 what he says next, kind of creates a new category for us and how God works and how he can work in the midst of our pivotal circumstance. Because in verse 4, what he says next is this. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, which is another way of saying this will make God known. Who God is, who he truly is, his identity. This situation will make him known. Notice for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. That in this verse, he creates a new category where sickness and illness and difficulty can be used for God's glory. To which I want to say, 
I don't know about that glory. I mean, I, I like the glory where I like through the winning touchdown pass and the reporter shoves a microphone in my face and I'm able to say, oh, to God's glory that that was able to happen. Or the glory where you win an Emmy or an Oscar and you walk up on stage and you're like, to God be the glory that I was able to win that prize. Or you get a new job and you're explaining to your friends and family, oh, to God be the glory that I got this new opportunity. And in this passage, Jesus says, yeah, you know, that program's great, but I have a program that's much more effective, that's much more effective for people to understand who I am and what I'm trying to do in the world. And we see this as the story continues. Because in this next verse, in verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And at this point, the story takes the direction that none of us want it to go. Jesus does what he shouldn't do. It just feels so wrong. And it leaves us with so much confusion. And we understand this and see this indicated by this very little word in the text. So, because what we expect to have happen is that John reminds us, hey, these are close friends of Jesus. So he went there immediately and was with them in their time of need. Or we expect because he was such good friends, so he healed them from his sickness. Or because they were so close friends, so he did one of his distant healing shots and all was well. But that's not what happened. What happened was he stayed. He stayed two more days. Two more days, Mary and Martha had to go without their connection and closeness to their friend Jesus. And we've all been there with God, haven't we? We've come to him and we said, God, please get me through this situation. God, please heal this illness. God, please bring together, reconcile this relationship that I'm trying to make work. God, would you please, and, and if you do, I'll come to church every week. God, I'll give regularly. I'll even let my kids become missionaries. If you just help me through this situation that I'm trying to get through. And we hear nothing. And we feel God is distant and far from us in our moment of need. And I can only imagine what Mary and Martha would have been going through. Two days where they're caring for their sick brother. Two days where one of them, I imagine, caring for his, his every need while the other is, is just looking off into the road, waiting for Jesus to come. And as people come by, asking, is Jesus on the road? Is he coming? I, I know he got the message. But two days they waited as their brother slipped into death. And then the story continues in verse 7. And then he said, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Let us now go to be with my friends. And the disciples are a little confused. He said this too because they, they didn't understand the whole situation with Lazarus and they didn't really want to go back to Judea. But Jesus explains further in verse 11. And, he sa and it says, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Like, this is a good thing. Like, he's sleeping off the, the, the sickness, and he'll break the fever, and it'll be all right. And Jesus, his disciples, excuse me, in verse 13, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he had met natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. To which I bet Jesus' disciples were so confused. Lazarus? You mean your close friend? Lazarus? Mary and Martha's brother? Lazarus who had done so much for you? He's dead? You let him die? 
what happened? Why is that? And then verse 15 clarifies the reason really for the whole story and what Jesus is up to here in this situation. And he says, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And for your sake? For your sake? To which I want to ask, what about for Mary and Martha's sake? What about for Lazarus' sake that you let this happen? And then he goes on to say, I'm glad. I'm glad despite all of their disappointment. I'm glad despite all of their unanswered questions. I'm glad for all that they had to go through. For, for, For what reason? And this little word comes back up in the text that clarifies what it is. So, so that you may what? So that you may believe? This group of people who would one day carry on Jesus' mission through the church. So that you would understand on a deeper level, in a new way, who I am at my core. That you would believe and trust in me in a way that you never have before. That your faith would grow through this pivotal circumstance. I'm glad despite all of this because of the belief that you can have and that can grow in my life. And there's nobody in this story who experienced this more than Mary and Martha. And this is so difficult for us to understand and and for us to wrap our, our minds around because oftentimes we like to make God say what we want him to say. And we like him to do the things that we want him to do. Truthfully, that's why I'm so grateful for our Parkview Kids ministry. From a very early age, they're doing a fantastic job teaching our kids about who God is and what he says. One of the ways they do that is through memory verses. Uh, My little Olivia, who's about two years old, she's learning this memory verse, Ephesians 2.10. And they're going over it with her on what God says. And we've been working on it. I've been so proud how, how she's been learning more and more and growing in that and it's been so cool to hear and one time just out of the blue we asked her Olivia what does Ephesians 2 10 say and without skipping a beat she goes moo well not exactly that's not exactly what God said and we may not make God say moo but we make him say all kinds of things that we just frankly want him to say And this is challenging and this is tough, but if we want to believe in the God of the Bible, if we want to believe in what God is doing in this story and what he can do in our lives as he grows our faith in pivotal circumstances, we have to come to the realization and understanding that God desires more to grow our faith and for us to have a deeper understanding about who he is than fix the situation and the surroundings that that surround us. The situation that surrounds us. That's how God works. And nobody knows this more and experiences this more than Mary and Martha. And so in verse 21, when Jesus finally makes his way to the village, the text says this. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I hope you hear all the weight and all the emotion that Martha says that with. Lord, if you would have been here, we wouldn't have been in this predicament. Lord, if you would have been here, everything would be okay. Where were you, God? Where were you when I needed you most? Where were you when I had to answer all of these questions? I've seen you heal so many more people who were so much less deserving than my brother Lazarus. Let you, let, yet you let him die. 
Yet you let us go through this situation. Where were you at? I hope you know that it's okay to be upset with God. It's okay to be angry with him. But what we always need to do is still always to come back to him. And what Martha says next, I think, really reveals to us how we can come to God in the midst of our pivotal circumstances. Because what she says next really is amazing. She says in verse 22, But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Translation, I believe in you. Even though I don't understand it, even though I have very little to hang my belief on, I trust and I know you have a connection with God and I know that you can work in a way that only you can work. So she says, I, I believe. And in verse 23, Jesus responds and said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, oh, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Martha thinks Jesus is giving her the normal customary, uh, comforting words that you say at a funeral. That it'll be okay. You'll see your loved one again. You'll be with them again, and we'll all be together in heaven, and there will be, you know, the, the famous people in the Bible that we'll be getting our autograph from, and, and it'll all be great. And she says, yeah, I, I know that. I, I know that, Jesus. Uh, and thank you for the comforting words. But Jesus had different, something different in mind for her in this situation, and a different lesson that he wanted to teach her. And what Jesus says next is truly remarkable. It's something that good teachers just don't say, that nice guys just don't say. And what Jesus has to say next, either it's true or Jesus is absolutely crazy. Because what Jesus says next is this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I know and understand that you think that I'm a good teacher. I know and understand that you think I have this connection with God, and, and I do, and I can do miracles, and, and, I, and all of these wonderful things. But it's more than all of that. It comes down to the fact that I am the very resurrection and the life. That this is what I want you to understand in the midst of your darkest situation, your deepest hurt, your most important need, that I am here and I can bring life to the situation. I think it was said best by a pastor recently who uh, was just outside of Houston and was doing really some incredible work helping as many people as he could and, and his church save them from the difficulty they were facing with the hurricane. And he was interviewed and this reporter asked him, what's keeping you going? How are you going? And he simply said, if I know the who, I can endure any what without fully understanding the why. And that's the lesson that Jesus is teaching to his friends and his disciples and for us today. That when we know the who, when we know the resurrection and the life, we can endure whatever what without fully understanding the why. And he continues to explain this. as He says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you not just accept a list of truths about me or some doctrine about me or something like that? But do you trust me? Do you put your life in my hands? Do you trust what I'm doing and how I can work? Do you believe without having anything to hang your belief on? And what Martha says next is truly remarkable once again. She says, yes, Lord. She replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Even in my hurt, even in my despair, even though I have very little to hang my belief on, I trust in you. 
I believe. Then Jesus asked to be taken to the graveside where his friend is buried. And the text says multiple times that he's filled with so much emotion. He is so torn up inside to the point where we get this very small verse. The smallest verse in the New Testament, smallest verse really in the Bible, but yet so very important. Where it says, Jesus left. John eleven thirty five. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. That Jesus wept. That in this moment, that Jesus doesn't rush ahead and do the miracle that he's about to do, but he sits there and he experiences everything that Mary and Martha experienced. And he mourned with them. That's what he does for us in our difficulty. He mourns with us in our brokenness. He mourns with us over our unborn child. He mourns with us through our impossible situation that we're facing. He doesn't just leave us with having sympathy and compassion for us, but he embraces us with empathy to know exactly what we're going through and what it's like to be in our situation. But he doesn't leave us there, and he didn't leave the story here with Mary and Martha either. Because they go to the grave, and what he asks to do next is to move the stone. And, and when they were beginning to move the stone away, Martha jumped into her very normal practical mode and said, whoa, wait, the body's going to stink. Like he's been in there four days. And if you grew up reading the King James, you know it says, I think most accurately, that he is going to stinketh. And yes, it, he would have, if it would have been four days. And it's in this moment in all the hurt and all the difficulty, that, that even though Martha believes, Jesus has to remind her this very important point with this question in verse 40. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And in this moment where Martha has accepted that this situation stinketh and she still believes and trusts in Jesus, Jesus reminds her, because I am the resurrection and the life, hope will come to this situation. It will get better, and I will bring life. And then Jesus looks up, and he prays this very kind of odd prayer. He looks up to God and says, hey, you and I know we have this connection, and you and I know what I'm about to do. I just want to make sure that everybody else sees that this isn't just me, but we're on a team working together through this. And so is everybody looking? Uh, okay, all right, I'm going to do what I what we know I was going to do. And then he turns and he says, Lazarus, come out. And in this moment that was filled with despair, that was lacking of hope, that had no life, the resurrection and the life comes and brings hope and life to the situation. And Lazarus raises from the dead. I like how it's been said. It's a good thing that he called Lazarus by name. Otherwise, a whole grave would have rose that day with him. And that's what happens when the resurrection and life comes to the situation. And it's what can happen to our life as well, even when we don't see it or understand it. And then the story ends this way in verse 45. That therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. They saw the trust that Mary and Martha had and saw how God worked in the midst of that situation and the faith that was grown in Mary and Martha and in the disciples and in us years later. And they were inspired to also have trust in Jesus. And so in this story, there's a cycle of how God worked in this and through this pivotal circumstance. And it's the very same cycle, how God can work in the midst of our pivotal circumstance. And the cycle starts with this, that pivotal circumstances shape our story. 
Whether we want to admit it or not, we are going to face pivotal circumstances. The question becomes, who is it that we're going to turn to? Where is the direction of our life going to take after we face him? Because we can either turn to God or away from him. But God's going to be there the whole time. I like what the author Philip Yancey had to say about this. He said, there's only one thing worse than disappointment with God. That's disappointment without God. I think we have to know about turning to God in, in these difficult situations is he doesn't expect us to do it individually. He gives us a community to turn to him together with. And so if you're facing a pivotal circumstance, a difficulty right here today, we have a number of people who are here and willing to pray with you and walk with you through this. We have a number of different care and support ministry opportunities where you can engage with a, a group of people who are going through a similar circumstance in their life. And, and you can turn to God in these opportunities. And what happens is I promise that your life will be transformed and you'll never be the same. And that takes us to the next step in our pivotal circumstance cycle is that God uses our story to tell his story. When we turn to him in our pivotal circumstance, God brings a transformation that wouldn't have happened if we didn't go through what we went through. And King Gyrus explains it well. He says, God uses the circumstances of our lives, however confusing, to conform us to the image of his son. That when we embrace God in this time, he brings resurrection in a unique way and life in a unique way to our situation. That's his promise. That's, that's how he works. And he grows our faith in the midst of it. And what happens as a result takes us to the last step in the cycle. That trusting God in pivotal circumstances invites others to also trust in God. Because of how others can see the relationship that we have with God and how he works in our life, they too will want to have a part of that. They too will want to have that faith and trust and relationship with God. So my next step for you, regardless of where you may be on this cycle, in, in this cycle of how God works, I want you to ask, where is it that you're working, God, in the midst of this cycle? Where is it that you're working in my life? Because what would happen if we begin to view our pivotal circumstances differently? And invited them and we invited God into these situations. I imagine what would happen is that our faith would grow in a way that we would have never believed that it could grow. And our stories would be so incredible. We would never believed it could happen beforehand. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for today. Thank you for how you work in our lives. And God, even though oftentimes we don't understand it and, and know how it all fits together, Father, we pray that you may show us how you are at work in these situations where we understand it the least and that we can't always see it. And we just ask that you work and that you grow our faith in only a way that you can. We love you and thank you for how you love us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.